This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Merrick Garland finally got off his ass and did the one job everyone wanted him to do. Former Trump advisor Stephen K. Bannon was indicted Friday by a Washington, D.C. grand jury over his failure to comply with a subpoena ordering him to testify before the House committee investigating the January 6th Capitol siege. And we start, of course, with the breaking news. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon has been indicted by a grand jury. An arrest warrant, we are told, will soon be signed by a judge. The indictment coming after Bannon refused a subpoena from the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Bannon was charged with two counts of contempt of Congress, one for refusing to provide testimony and the other for failing to turn over documents. The subpoena required Bannon to appear and produce documents to the Select Committee on October 7th of 2021 and to appear for a deposition before the Select Committee on October 14th of 2021, the indictment states. On September 24th of 2021, Bannon accepted service of the subpoena through his attorney. Instead, the filing states Bannon sent a letter on October 7th telling the committee that he would not comply with the subpoena because former President Donald J. Trump had claimed that the subpoena sought records and testimony potentially protected by executive and other privileges and had instructed Bannon to the fullest extent permitted by law not to talk or turn over anything to investigators. And of course, Jake, this will send a warning shot to the president's allies uh, who have so far refused to cooperate or appear or may in the future refuse. This is a warning shot to them that the Department of Justice will and can move forward and charge people with contempt of Congress here. In a statement issued Friday, Attorney General Merrick Garland said, since my first day in office, I have promised Justice Department employees that together we would show the American people by word and deed that the department adheres to the rule of law, follows facts and the law, and pursues equal justice under the law. Today's charges reflect the department's steadfast commitment to these principles. But I think it sends a really important message to future, you know, invited witnesses, future folks that are subpoenaed. You know, you cannot ignore Congress. The reality is you may not like it. You may not like the investigation. You may think nothing wrong was done, but you're not going to be able to avoid it. And that is important for the people of the United States to be able to have their voice heard, to be able to get answers through Congress. So this is This is certainly a good thing, and I hope it sends a chilling message to anybody else that was going to follow through like this. Bannon, though, has maintained his arrogant fucking posture. On Friday, he produced two episodes on his daily The War Room podcast and promised another in the late afternoon, casting doubt on the results of the 2020 election and discussing the prisoners of January 6th. I mean, seriously, what an asshole. Here's what our investigation has uncovered so far. The January 6th detainees are being treated different than almost every other person in the Federal Bureau of Prisons or that's in any type of detention in a federal facility. You'll recall when Donald Trump was president, regularly members of Congress who were Democrats, Republicans, could go and see detention facilities, prisons, places where illegal aliens were being held. And that often led to a robust national discussion about conditions and the legal basis for holding various groups of people. One thing is for certain, should Mr. Bannon end up behind bars, he will have to abandon his unique style of wearing multiple shirts simultaneously. 
Now I'm serious. I know because I was in prison. If you're not familiar with the Bannon style of dress, which apparently is some fucking weird holdover from when he was sent to military academy, check out a few images of him on Google. He's got on two, sometimes three, collared shirts on top of an undershirt. Steve Bannon has been a favorite late-night target. His uh, chief strategist and human sloppy Joe. How long was this guy floating in the harbor? And his 60 Minutes interview only made things worse. I'm a street fighter. That's what I am. The fashion police definitely had Steve Bannon collared, collared twice. For literally wearing two button-down shirts, black on black in this case, but he's worn different colors, one atop the other, before GQ asserted Steve Bannon doesn't understand layering, advising one collar at a time, please. Maybe he gets easily cold, I don't know. It's the one thing I've always wanted to ask him. I would see the guy around from time to time in Trump Tower, and I never liked the guy. He'd stride around like General Patton, making pronouncement and acting like he was second coming of Karl Rove. But he wasn't. Bannon was Breitbart, and Breitbart opened the door for Trump to play footsie with the all-right, which meant some ugly, ugly people. All the Nazis, militia freaks, and QAnon bullshit, that started when Bannon walked through the door. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's going to be moving. It's going to be quick. This is not a day for fantasy. This is a day for maniacal focus. Focus, focus, focus. We're coming in right over the target, okay? Exactly. This is the point of attack we always wanted. Anyway, where were we? Oh, yeah. Contempt of Congress. Each count is punishable by a maximum of one year in jail, as well as a fine of up to $1,000. The case is being investigated by the FBI's Washington field office, and is being prosecuted by the Public Corruption and Civil Rights Section of the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia. In making a move to indict Bannon, Garland sends a clear signal to other Trump toadies currently refusing to testify that the stakes for non-compliance are now very serious. On Friday, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows refused to comply with a congressional subpoena to appear before the committee. Each charge of contempt carries the possibility of a year imprisonment as well as the fine. This is the rule of law striking back, Nicole. Uh, these guys, Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, Mark Meadows, uh, they have run rampant for the last four years uh, in a land of uh, no laws, uh, where they were essentially above the law. They were pirates in international waters. And now they are coming to find that uh, they should be and will be treated just like everyone else. So, Mark Meadows, uh, call your office because your refusal to show up today uh, is probably not going to be looked upon kindly uh, at the Department of Justice. I predict this is going to, you know, see a lot of the witnesses who have refused to come in so far uh, have a change of, uh, you know, tune, and that you will start to see from see them. And that means probably uh, once depositions are completed, a pretty powerful public presentation of. Who planned uh, the January 6th insurrection? Who financed it? What was the president's role as he incited and aimed the mob at the Capitol? And then, of course, as the temperature rises in this country with political violence, what can we do to make sure it never happens again? When it comes to Bannon, there is ample reason as to why the committee would like to speak to him as it seeks to understand what happened in the days leading up to January 6th, as well as the insurrection that broke out that day. Well, stop the steel. 
Today I will lay out just some of the evidence proving that we won this election and we won it by a landslide. This was not a close election. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania. And we're going to the Capitol and we're going to try and give our Republicans the weak ones because the strong ones don't need any of our help. We're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country. In late December of 2020, Bannon was on the phone with Donald Trump, urging the then president to make January 6th the date of the official certification of the Electoral College vote by Congress, a sort of final stand in his war on non-existent voter fraud. As authors Bob Woodward and Bob Costa recount in their book, Bannon told Trump to focus on January 6th. That was the moment for a reckoning. People are going to go. What the fuck is going on here? Bannon believed. We're going to bury Biden on January 6th. Fucking bury him. If Republicans could cast enough of a shadow on Biden's victory on January 6th, Bannon said, it would be hard for Biden to govern. Millions of Americans would consider him illegitimate. They would ignore him. They would dismiss him and wait for Trump to run again. We're going to kill it in the crib. Kill the Biden presidency in the crib, he said. You smell that? Hey, fun, son. Nothing else in the world smells like that. I love the smell of napalm in the morning. Smell! You know that gasoline smell? Oh, hell. Smells like... Victory. Finally, today, if you were wondering if Trump is really as much a sociopath as I've said he is, check out the taped interview the former president conducted with ABC's Jonathan Carl for his upcoming book Betrayal, the final act of The Trump Show. The former president can be heard defending the threats made against former Vice President Mike Pence by insurrectionists as they storm the Capitol. When you catch somebody in a fraud, you're allowed to go by very different rules. So I hope Mike has the courage to do what he has to do. Trump, whose campaign to pressure Pence into halting Congress's certification of the 2020 Electoral College votes, ultimately failed, said he thought his vice president was well protected as hundreds of pro-Trump protesters stormed the halls of Congress. At the time, some rioters could be heard shouting, hang Mike Pence who was at the Capitol that day, presiding over the Senate's counting of the votes. We will stop the steal. Today I will lay out just some of the evidence proving that we won this election and we won it by a landslide. This was not a close election. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. Were you worried about him during that, that siege? Were you worried about no, his safety? No, I thought he was well protected, and I, I had heard that he was in good shape. No, because uh, I had heard he was in very good shape. But, but no, you I heard those it, chants, that was terrible. I mean, was, you know, the... He could have, well, the people were very angry. They were saying, hang my Because it's, it's common sense, John, it's common sense that you're supposed to protect. How can you, if you know a vote is fraudulent, 
right? Yeah. How can you pass on a fraudulent vote to Congress? In Trump's fucked up worldview, whatever his supporters feel, it's fucking justified. They felt angry. They chanted that they wanted to hang the vice president for not taking part in Trump's lie. How can he possibly say that what they did was wrong? After all, as he said, the people were very angry. Not that he stopped for a moment to think about the fact that it was in fact his lies that made them so pissed off to begin with. Some people were saying 1776, if it's rigged, if it's being stolen, why not? Charged the I, I, don't know. I, I hadn't heard that, but people were very angry. And people were there, that crowd, never, the press, the fake news, which is fake, uh, the fake news never talked about the size of that crowd. That crowd was a massive crowd. It was a massive crowd. That Pence hasn't disavowed Trump even in the face of comments like the ones the former president made to Jonathan Carl speaks to the strength and power of the cult of personality that dominates the current version of the Republican Party. If you can't walk away from a man who takes the side of those chanting to murder you, who can you walk away from? And now for the main event. My next guest on Maya Culpa returns to us for the first time since she appeared on our show just days before the January 6th insurrection. Asha Rangappa is a senior lecturer at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, as well as its admission director and a CNN commentator. Prior to her current position, Asha served as a special agent in the New York division of the FBI, specializing in counterintelligence investigations. Her work involved assessing threats to national security, conducting classified investigations on suspected foreign agents, and performing undercover work. She's also an editor at the widely respected Just Security. Rangappa's must-read Twitter page delights in skewering the former president for the beating he takes in the courts, but also serves up timely and much-needed information about the sorry state the Democrats find themselves in combating a deluge of disinformation and gutter politics from the GOP. She joins me on Maya Culpa as the January 6th committee finally seems to be getting its act together as they seek to get the truth at all costs. So let's go now to that conversation. So Asha, this week marked the one-year anniversary of Joe Biden's electoral victory, as well as the one-year anniversary of the infamous Four Seasons Total Landscaping debacle. Now, <laughs> what began as a fucking laughable joke later turned into a nightmare on January 6th that seems to have no real end in sight. I'm beginning to worry that despite the advances made by the January 6th committee, this may end with no real accountability for Donald Trump or those who aided him in his attempt to overturn the election and incite an insurrection. In your mind, how does this end and what's the best that we can possibly expect? So, Michael, I'm trying to keep my hopes up because I, I, too, start to feel a little bit demoralized um, about what lies ahead. Um, so here's what I would say. Like, let's remember a couple of good things. First, it's now clear more than ever that the impeachment, the second impeachment, was absolutely the right thing to do. Uh, because in that moment, right after January 6th happened, when things were fresh, uh, documenting it, 
um, kind of, uh, you know, noting the uh, gravity of what happened is so important because we see that since then there's been a, an attempt to whitewash and uh, minimize it. So I think that that has been vindicated, um, just that effort, even though, you know, he wasn't removed. Um, there is a committee investigating it. That's really good, too. Uh, they seem to be moving at a very fast clip. They've interviewed 150 witnesses. They are getting documents from a lot of places. They are likely going to succeed uh, in this court battle over these White House documents that are held by the National Archives. Um, I think that they are going to need to move things into the public arena soon, um, because a lot of what they're doing is behind closed doors um, and I, I get that they want to be thorough. They don't want this to become a circus, but it does need to say front and center in, in people's minds. And whether it's a report or some kinds of hearings that they have, I think they need to push that into the public. Um, whether that will result in actual accountability, I don't know, because Congress really can't. I mean, you know, they can say what happened and they can pass laws around it, but really the accountability is going to come from the department of justice. And that's where I'm, I I'm just torn. I have to believe that the attorney general Merrick Garland is pursuing this, pursuing everything to the highest levels. But sometimes I wonder whether in the interest of somehow not appearing political or something like that, maybe they're not. And that freaks me out. You know, when you sit and you watch television and you listen to the radio, um, whether it's NPR or Sirius or any of these other talk shows, everybody's saying virtually the same thing, that legal experts are wondering why the Justice Department hasn't done anything and why are they doing nothing publicly in order to pursue the former president, his sycophants, these, these, the Kushner, you know, Jared Kushner, Ivanka, Rudy Giuliani, and doing more. You know, it's almost as if they're waiting to see what's going to happen with the DA here in New York and the attorney general here in New York, whether they're waiting to see what's going to happen with the AG in Georgia or now with the, uh, you know, with the district attorney in Washington, D.C. regarding the pick, the presidential inaugural committee. I mean, there's so much that is out there, forgetting about all of the civil litigation that Trump, his company are involved in right now, myself included. I have a lawsuit pending against uh, Trump and the Trump organization for my legal fees. I spent you know, millions of dollars in legal fees providing testimony to nine different congressional committees, 400 plus hours, all done for at original, you know, at, for his benefit, at his direction, when he said to me, I want you to cooperate. Okay. Well, you can't tell me to cooperate and then tell me not to cooperate simply because why? Because it's not, you know, in your best interest, you know, for me to tell the truth, which, you know, not telling the truth got me in trouble in the first place on his behalf, but he's facing this uphill series of legal battles all over the place. And yet it's now. November, it's now November, and everybody is waiting for this second round of indictments, third round of indictments. Here in New York with the district attorney, they just re-impaneled the second grand jury. Now, some people are commenting that that second impaneling is because the first one, time expired. I don't know if that's true or not. Is it? I, <laughs> Michael, I don't know. So here's my, I, I think that there's one of two things that, that could be happening here. Um, I think we haven't seen anything publicly, partly because to the extent that 
the FBI and the Department of Justice would be investigating Trump and his inner circle at the highest levels for, you know, whether it's um, an attempt to defraud a conspiracy to defraud the United States, you know, trying to use the Department of Justice as a weapon to uh, advance unfounded theories of voter fraud, uh, whether it was a conspiracy to overthrow the United States, um, seditious conspiracy, um, that would be a very close hold investigation for obvious reasons, given the sensitivity of it. Um, and I think basically be on lockdown, um, you know, in much the same way that, for example, the Russia investigation was um, until, you know, before Trump was elected. I would like to think that that is what's happening. And that's why they are being incredibly careful about revealing to making public moves until they really have, uh, you know, they, they know that they can pursue this case and withstand the scrutiny that's going to come. Um, the other possibility is what you said, that they're just waiting to see what happens with these other things and hoping that these states, uh, you know, pick up the baton or something so that they can avoid the political crosshairs, which would mean, by the way, Michael, that Trump was successful in his efforts to cow DOJ, like for the four years that he did it, um, you know, trashing the Department of Justice, trashing the FBI, discrediting, um, you know, the entire apparatus that was trying to hold him accountable, the Mueller investigation. Um, I think, you know, I hope that he has not succeeded in that and they aren't, uh, you know, afraid to take this on. I mean, there can't be a more important investigation to that the federal uh, government that, you know, the federal DOJ has to take on um, than an attack on the Capitol. So I don't have an answer for you. And I wish I could tell you that I was 100 percent confident on what DOJ was doing, but I'm really not sure. We talk a lot about Merrick Garland, the DOJ, you know, on this program. We've spoken to you about it in the past when you were good enough to come on. Um, it's, a, it's a real problem. And while none of us want to see another Bill Barr, another Donald Trump weaponization of the Justice Department, what we actually need is not what Merrick Garland is doing right now, which is this thoughtful, um, you know, this uh, nonpartisan type of attorney general. This would be absolutely fine if we didn't come off of four years of the fucking orange-crusted, bloviated asshole, right, who decided to weaponize the Justice Department against anyone and everyone that he deemed to be against him, myself included. And I'm dying for those documents to come out to show just how badly that he and Bill Barr, you know, the damage that they've caused to our country, to our democracy. But if I was the attorney general, and for, okay, so Joe Biden, if you're listening to my podcast, which I'm sure you are, right, Get rid of Merrick Garland. Put me in. I promise you, within 48 hours, I would have impaneled a special counsel. I don't give a shit what anybody says. I'm impaneling a special counsel. And when it comes to FOIA, I'm not asking you. All right? I am telling you, give me the documents that I want. Because here's what we also know. Trump knows how very well to play the system. We were playing the system for him when it didn't mean anything. It was a fucking real estate deal. It was bullshit. You were there with me when we were in Florida at the Doral many, many years ago. And we were negotiating with some other crap on whether it was the paint uh, against Benjamin Moore or something else that I talk about in my book, Disloyal. We have much bigger problems here. Trump knows how to play the legal system, how to slow roll it in that way come the midterm elections. If by chance the House 
reverts back to the Republicans, they're not going to allow their supreme leader to get beaten up and they're going to protect him. And the scumbag Teflon Don is going to end up walking in. You know, Reuters had a great article. It was done by Jan Wolf entitled U.S. Judge Rejects Latest Trump Request to Block the Release of Documents to House Riot Probe. He knows exactly what he's doing. It's no different. I put up a tweet today where I found an old document that I had written uh, to Fordham University ensuring that his records would never be made available. Why? Because they don't benefit him. Because his grades were so fucking piss poor that he didn't want people to see that he doesn't have a big brain, that he doesn't use the best words, that he's not the, he's not the, the stable genius that he claims to be. He's just not, right? And if it's not going to advance his bullshit narrative, he's not into it. And so, you know, look, let, let me jump into that as a question for you. Because Donald has had a terrible mm-hmm. week in court. Um, you know, uh, especially, you know, in the last few days. And Judge Chukin ruled against him and ordered the release of his White House documents from the National Archive and then ruled against him two hours later when he sought an injunction. Does this mean that we'll finally get to see what's in those documents? Or does he have more avenues? And I, of course, I already know the answer to this. Does he have more avenues in which he can stall the process? It goes to the Supreme Court. Then what do you see happening there? These are great questions. So for him to stall this particular request, he needs a stay. Um, This is, you know, he requested a preliminary injunction uh, to the district court telling them to, you know, prevent the National Archives from releasing these documents. He has all these, you know, wacky constitutional claims. District court says, said no. He then applied for a stay pending appeal to, to the district court. The district court said no again. He's now asked the appellate court for a brief stay um, while they, you know, brief, uh, you know, the his 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 next, you know, appeal. Um, and, you know, it's really once if the stay isn't granted, those documents go out. He can still proceed on, you know, his constitutional claims or whatever. Um, but, yeah, he can if they do grant the stay and he, you know, takes it all the way up. Um He's not going to prevail. He's not going to prevail even at the Supreme Court. And here's why. He's basically proposing that former presidents retain the same kinds of executive powers as current presidents do and that they can even supersede them. Um, So basically, we'd have like a bunch of you know, presidents walking around who all have who all share powers, which does not comport with the Constitution, which says that all executive power rests in the office of the president, in the president of the United States, the person sitting in the Oval Office right now. And I don't think that the Supreme Court would open the door to, um, you know, some kind of weird theory where, you know, former presidents have the same, uh, you know, some veto power over current presidents. So I think in this case, his ability to delay will be limited. But I, you know, I don't know. I don't really uh, the documents may come out. These witnesses are still proceeding on this executive privilege theory. Those could take longer. Um, So as you said, Michael, I think the bigger picture is the House is working on a timeline because if the House turns over, you're right. Not only are they not going to allow the president to be this January 6th to be investigated, they're going to disband this committee. 
I think they're going to bury everything that has been found. Um, they are going to make it so it never happened. This, there's a rewriting of history. This is like Ministry of Truth from George Orwell's 1984. You know, I think that they want to rewrite the whole thing. And it kind of brings us back to your original point about the Department of Justice, because that will survive, a, you know, a, a change in the House. Right. It's still uh, the you know Justice Department um, under Merrick Garland. And I completely agree with you. If there are concerns about the Department of Justice looking too partisan, that is the time to appoint a special counsel. That is the purpose of the special counsel, to create a buffer. And I wrote a thread on Twitter on why I think here it's it's a close call, but I think that it would be the right thing to do. Um, because I think you're right. You know, you can't just operate as normal in this situation. This is like, you know, we've inherited a minivan with bad alignment. And it is just veering off the highway. Uh, and you can't just be like, OK, we're going to drive straight now, because guess what? You're pointing in the wrong direction. Like you need to overcompensate and kind of to, to bring it back on track. And I think you're right that Merrick Garland does not seem to be up for doing that. And the Department of Justice may be the only hope if, uh, you know, the January 6th committee can't uh, move forward fast enough, um, you know, and and ultimately gets taken apart. I mean, it's the whole thing. It, it's funny and it's sad all at the same time, right? Now, I forget who Trump's attorney is on uh, this specific um, appeal for the, for the stay. But one of the things that if I was him, I would be absolutely furious about. You knew that this was going to be at a frenetic pace. You knew that you didn't have a lot of time considering uh, the judge's ruling. And so why they waited and wasted mm -hmm. all day yesterday to get the document. That way they would know today what was that so that they could make their next move. The documents are due to be released PM. tomorrow. So once the it's documents done. are released, all of this wrangling by Trump is over. It's gonzo, buddy, right? It's not how it works. But what's funny, and I mean, it is fucking funny because only someone as crazy as Donald Trump could actually think this, that a former president retains executive privilege equal to that of the current president. I mean, could you imagine Trump turning around and saying, look, I'm the former president. I have all the same rights that the existing president. So let me into the White House. Hey, Joe, slide over. Let's share the bed like Ernie and Bert. Right. And then, of course, the Republicans can sit there and they could yell it. Yeah, it'll be it'll be Donald and Donald and Joe instead of Ernie and Bert. And then we're going to have, you know, we'll have like Mayor de Blasio come in as Big Bird. <laughs> right. Well, we'll just put like a yellow hat on the guy. Can't stand him either. He's another jerk off. But it's unbelievable. Like Trump literally thinks that he controls the power of the presidency, even to the point I saw this today. And it, it's another thing that just it astounds me. Nothing that Trump, I, I'm almost out of being astounded by Trump. He sent somebody over to, uh, what was it? Uh, oh, Serbia, Rick Grinnell as an ambassador and what, envoy. Rick Grinnell. Yeah. Yes, envoy. By the way, since when does a former president have a an envoy that goes over to a foreign country in order to negotiate on behalf of the United States, by the that's way, illegal. that's it's illegal. That's illegal. Yeah, there's something called the Logan Act, um, you know, which uh, prevents private citizens from negotiating on behalf of uh, the United States without the permission of the United States. Um, but 
Yeah. You know, he, he, but that goes to what you just noted, which is he is trying to operate as though he is still the president. Um, he was operating as though he was the president before he was even inaugurated. Remember? I mean, we had the call from Michael Flynn to, uh, the Russian ambassador then. Um, and so it's like he, I think the, uh, Judge Chutkin mentioned this in her opinion, that he believes that he retains executive power for all perpetuity, that he is just president for life, uh, that he's a king. And that is simply not how our government works. Uh, it would, you know, we only have one president at a time. It's sort of a basic principle. Um, but, you know, this is playing into the big lie, right? Like this is kind of, uh, I assume, perpetuating this notion among his base that he's the true president, you know, and you have all these QAnon supporters who think he's going to be reinstated or something. So I guess it's just like his little shadow, you know, government, which obviously has no legal basis. But what I worry about is, you know, these people live in an alternate reality. And as as he and other members of the Republican Party perpetuate this, you know, crazy world where Trump is still the president or he's a real president, he won, he, you know, won the election, we are really asking for more violence to happen in the future. And I think that is what I am really worried about. And once again, only underscores why it is so important for the Department of Justice to really bring down the hammer on every single person, bottom to top, uh, in what happened on January 6th. Yeah, but Asha, Here's the biggest problem. It's not just in Donald's head. It's all of his supporters and the people like a Rick Grinnell who's stupid enough to go over there, like a Dan Scavino who's walking around, like, um, you know, Kaylee McEnany and so many others that are still yeah. Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz is the whole group of these, these sycophantic fools. They believe that you and I and my listeners, that we all live in the alternate reality, that we're living in a reality where Donald Trump is not the supreme leader, that he is not the, ma the monarch, he is not the king, the uh, autocrat, you know, that we are living in some fake delusional world where somebody like Joe Biden is actually, right, president of the United States. And it's, to me, it's just, it's, it's mind-blowing when you see guys like, um, what's his name? Dave Packman goes out, out and he interviews people on the street, especially at these sort of pro-Trump rallies in the, in the red states. And they actually will tell you that Donald is the president. Who's Joe Biden? Donald won the election. It was stolen from him. Everybody knows that, right? The fact that he's not in the White House doesn't mean anything, that he still controls all of the levers and power of the government. Just look at how he's behaving. These are the comments that these people are making. This is so destructive yeah. to our democracy. This is so destructive to the very foundation of our constitution that it's exactly why I'm, I'm begging Joe Biden, make me attorney general. I'll have his fat ass locked up in about eight seconds flat. No different than what they did to me. I will throw the full weight of the US government the full weight of the Justice Department against him and Jared and Ivanka and a dozen and a half other people that are involved, Rudy Giuliani, I will have them all in handcuffs and shackles like they did to me in under a minute. Yeah, I don't think that 
I, I'm not getting the sense that the Biden administration understands the urgency of this moment um, and that we are really at the precipice of really like an authoritarian takeover. <laughs> I mean, I, I know that sounds alarmist and weird, but I think that's exactly what's happening. I mean, right now, the only thing that's kind of holding the line are the courts, right? So again, in this district court opinion that just came out, you know, Judge Chutkin said, you know, presidents are not kings and plaintiff is not the president. So, you know, we have the courts who keep reiterating this, but then what's going to happen is the legitimacy of the courts is just going to get eroded. Um, these same supporters that, you know, Dave Packman talks to, I'm sure don't be believe that, you know, the deep state is in the courts too, or that they're all liars too. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we need, um, there's, I think where, where Trump is benefiting is from the norms that we have observed over hundreds of years, right? And one of those is we don't want to look like an, uh, an authoritarian government where we go after, you know, former presidents and, and jail political opponents. And I think that's the kind of thing that's motivating Merrick Garland. But as you noted, Trump was sui generis. Like he was an outlier in our entire history. And we can't just apply norms like it's business as usual. Um, he does need to be prosecuted for his crimes. He does need to go to jail. And yes, that would be, you know, it, it would be a huge departure from kind of how we treated, you know, like even Nixon was asked to step down. He was pardoned and all that stuff. I just don't think that we as a country can afford that, especially in a case where someone has no remorse and takes no accountability. I mean, Nixon took accountability. We can say that, right? Like he stepped down. He accepted that he was guilty and we're not getting that. And, um, he, you know, it's, we're basically just. You can't even get you. Ashley, you can't even get Donald to acknowledge right. that he's not the president, that right. he fairly lost a a. Uh, uh, an election, right? And it's everybody else's fault. It's the machine's fault. It's the voters' fault. It's everybody's fault. But you know, let's just let's dive into Judge um, Chuckin's ruling yep. for a quick second because there were some highlights in it that you know she wrote that I found fascinating, and I want to touch on it for my listeners in case they haven't mm -hmm. had a chance to read through it. But these are her words at bottom. This is a dispute between a former and incumbent president. And the Supreme Court has already made clear that in such circumstances, the incumbent's view is accorded greater weight. Now, this goes to the whole aspect of Donald Trump believing that former presidents or presidents that are actually the president, but they're not occupying the White House, have the same rights of the, the same, you know, presidential um, rights that the current president has, right? Uh, this executive privilege. And obviously that's not accurate. And that's one of the things that the judge wrote right. in this decision. Exactly. Um, so the bottom line is this. What she says is executive privilege doesn't belong to a person. It belongs to the office. And it exists for the benefit of the republic. It's there to protect the executive branch from unwanted intrusions of Congress and the person who is best suited to determine whether this, you know, request or intrusion from Congress is uh, bad for the presidency is a person who's occupying the office. Um, and what she says is here, like normally executive privilege is like a battle between Congress and the president. But here 
Biden has agreed, like Congress and the president are in agreement. So she's like, as you said, this isn't really a battle between Congress and the president. This is a battle between the former president and the current president. And I'll point this out, Michael, and I'm sure you'll have something to add on this. I imagine that when Trump was president, he would not acknowledge that, say, President Obama would have some kind of veto power over documents that he might choose to release or, you know, like, and, and he thinks that he's going to be president again. Is he suggesting that if he wins in 2024, that President Biden, as a former president, will have, you know, the same uh, privileges and immunities as he does, that he can have veto power, even greater power than him? In other words, Trump's perspective seems to change depending on where he is, right? Like, if he were president, he would be arguing that former presidents have no power at all. And to the contrary, one of the things that he said was that when he was president, he has ultimate decision-making rights. He can do whatever he wants. He doesn't even need Congress for anything. And then they point out, Mr. President, uh, (laughs) you're wrong about that. So he goes, he goes, I have executive privilege power and I can do whatever I want. Now, I want to continue for a quick second because uh, Judge Chukin also goes on and says, Trump does not acknowledge the deference owed to Biden's judgment as the current president. And then she notes examples of past presidents declining to assert executive privilege and rejected what she said was Trump's claim that executive privilege, and this is the best the best line that I saw so far in that Reuters article, exists in perpetuity. Well, if that's the case, why not have a sit down then with George Bush and Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter, and right, and President Obama, <laughs> right? Let's all sit down with the whole group of them and make a determination as to which way do we go. But then again, Donald will say, well, I was the last one, and then therefore my say is more important and more relevant than yours because it affects me. And then, of course, she finished with the line that you used, presidents are not kings. And plaintiff right. is not the president. That I thought that was, was the, the most telling line. line. And that's something someone should totally. make into a bumper sticker. Um, yes, that was the like clearest line there is basically her explaining, like breaking it to him that he's not the president. Um, and I want to add, because she doesn't address this specifically, but I think it's important to note because it flows from her idea that executive privilege exists for the benefit of the republic. In other words, this is it's there to ensure the separation of powers, to make sure that the government can function, that each branch can do its job. Executive privilege is about the president being able to perform his core functions. What is being investigated here, Michael, is the attempt to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. That is not a core function of the presidency. That is an attempt to undermine the republic. So, you know, it's just this like laughable claim that I attempted to overthrow the government and now I'm going to try to use this privilege that's there to, you know, help the government function to uh, cover up my my crimes. Um, you can imagine if you were to uphold this idea, what would what would be the disincentive for anyone sitting in the Oval Office to try to do a power grab in the last, you know, two weeks of office using everything in their disposal uh, and then, you know, basically stonewalling any investigation if they fail by saying, oh, I exert executive privilege. Like, it makes no sense. It makes no yeah. sense. 
Of course it doesn't make sense. It makes absolutely no sense. But then again, you know, this nine member committee that's investigating his, you know, Trump's conduct. One of the things that I want to see, because I believe that they've issued now 35 mm-hmm. subpoenas. The one that I want to see testify more than anybody else <laughs> is Donald himself. First of all, I've read dozens of Donald Trump transcripts from depositions over the years, and they are about as dumb as you could possibly imagine. You cannot believe that this man went to an Ivy League school. You cannot believe that this man has an education. You cannot believe that this man actually held the office of the presidency because they are stupid. They don't make any sense at all. It's basically whatever shit his mind can make up while he's sitting there. And he double talks himself. So if you ask him a question at the beginning of the deposition, then again, another one in the middle and another at the end, he's not going to tell you camera, male, female, person, TV, you know, hamburger, (laughs) uh, vanilla shake, right? Coca-Cola TV. He's not going to give you one of those and tell you that his IQ is above is above and his cognitive abilities are better than that of anybody else's. Right. I want to see Trump testify because it will show him to be the blubbering fool that he actually is. And it will absolutely finish this entire nonsense conversation about a 2024 run. In fact, I believe it would ultimately lead to his incarceration because when he started screaming, let's fight like hell and everybody go to the Capitol and I'll see you there. We know exactly what he was saying. We knew exactly what Rudy Giuliani was saying when he stood on that podium. We knew what Don Jr. or Josh Hawley was saying when they stood up on the podium. They knew exactly what they were doing. We know from the Willard Hotel communications the day before who, what, when were all hanging out there, including Bernie Kerrick. We know exactly what was going on because these people communicated by text message and also by emails and our incredible law enforcement agents, yeah, they have I, them. I do think that law enforcement has it. And of course, you know, they won't be able to release that to the public unless they indict anyone. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, if they were able to get uh, Trump to testify, he would totally admit that he called the code red. Like you would totally have a Colonel Jessup moment. Um, I'm sure he would just confess to the crime um, because he, you know, I mean, he used to confess to crimes on Twitter all the time, um, uh, like to obstructing justice and stuff. Um, And, you know, that it brings up a point that in many ways, I think one of the, I won't call it an original sin, but like, you know, one of the big missteps that I think happened during the Mueller investigation was not trying to subpoena Trump. Back then, I mean, a lot of these battles should have really happened at a time before, you know, so many of our institutions and uh, discourse had had eroded to this point. Like there was I know it's hard to think back, but I think there was more political capital and more um, faith. And had had we tested some of these things then, even though they were novel legal questions and would have gotten into, you know, constitutional thickets it would have possibly made a difference in both how things unfolded and in what Trump and, and the boundaries which Trump would be willing to push at this stage, in my opinion. You know, he, he needs somebody to push back, yeah. it sounds like. Well, I mean, you know him better than anyone. It's the same reason why Hillary Clinton lost. 
It's go back to the debates as Donald Trump was lurking and bouncing over her while she's trying to speak. The only one that turned around and actually did it was Joe Biden. He was like, oh, shut the hell up, man. Right. Finally, someone. But if I was up on the stage and he was debating me, there wouldn't be a debate because he's too stupid to debate. And so what he does is he gets down into the dirt with you. Right. Like a fifth grade, you know bully in the in the playground right you gotta you gotta hit Mm -hmm. him back it's like what he did to marco rubio with the little marco or even jeb bush with the low energy jeb and all this other stuff you gotta hit him back you say to him listen to me and my problem is of course i have um i have a certain choice usage (laughs) of words that i probably shouldn't at least according to my mom Right. I shouldn't say the things that I say, but I can't help it. I am who I am. Uh, nobody else in my family curses. Like I, I think that either I'm adopted or they dropped me on my head. It was one of the two, but I would never allow Donald Trump to sit there and to berate me and to say the things that he said, um, to whether it was Hillary Clinton or to Joe Biden or so on. It's very simple to say, you know, why don't you take your fat ass over to Shake Shack? Right. And go wolf down a couple of burgers, you fucking moron. Right. Why don't you get off the stage with your fucking diaper. Right. And your candy and your cotton candy hair. Right. With your fucking scars all over the top of your head and get the fuck out of here. Go back to Mar-a-Lago where people actually give a shit about you. That's what you have to say to him where all of a sudden now he's like, uh, right. Because Donald Trump's not right. a quick thinker. Unless he's being nasty. That's the only thing he knows how to do. And he knows the the little yep. quips, right? So he talks in he the talks in bites. bumper stickers. Yeah. And you can't allow that right. You can't allow that to happen. But l- mm-hmm. let me move on for a sec, Asha, because the January 6th committee issued a slew of subpoenas this week to most of Trump's inner circle. Now, these are people who were with him or close to him on January 6th. Some will testify, but others are likely to take the route that Steve Bannon and Jeffrey Clark are, which is to refuse to comply with the subpoenas. Now, this goes right mm-hmm. back again to Merrick Garland. Why hasn't Merrick Garland thrown the fucking full weight of the DOJ at these people? I would do it. I would have them already, I would have them already um, up for contempt and refer them for prosecution. I mean, what's Garland's mode of operandi here. Well, it's interesting. I read a lawfare piece today. I've been frustrated as well, but it did tease out some nuances in terms of, you know, internal Office of Legal Counsel opinions and precedents, which kind of give, I mean, we know that Bannon is not acting in good faith. We know this, but that's as you, as a lawyer, you understand that he just needs to make plausible legal arguments, right? To convict him on contempt of Congress, they have to show that he uh, willfully, um, you know, defied Congress. And what he's, you know, Bannon's making these legal arguments that have enough plausibility that, you know, he like it would, that I think that it could be that Garland is afraid that it would be hard to prove to a jury that he had no basis to believe that he really did have you know, um, some sort of executive privilege or, or a way, you know, a, le- a reason, a valid reason not to appear. Um, it's very thin, but I think the only reason would be as if Merrick Garland doesn't want to bring a prosecution that is not a slam dunk because that would be the worst thing of all. Um, having said that, 
at some point you're like, if not Bannon, who was like running a podcast, like, you know, who he leave aside like conversations he has with the president, like a lot of what the committee is also wanting to know is like, where was, well, how did he have this foreknowledge when he was talking on his podcast about what was going to go down the next day? Like, you know, those are not privileged, like under any stretch of the imagination. Okay. So Asha, Asha, let's, bre- let's break this down. All right. Let's yeah. just use Steve Bannon, because as I said, there are 35. You got Mark Meadows. I'd like to hear from him. Dan Scavino, not sure what the hell he could, you know, except he was really his, you know, his Twitter, you know, guy. He was his social media guy. Maybe he knows. Um, but let's just stick with Steve Bannon as the example mm-hmm. for all of them. Steve Bannon received a pardon. So he's not capable of taking the fifth, not as far as as I believe I could be wrong. Well, this, his pardon doesn't cover his this conduct, right? He was pardoned for specific crimes, I think, for that whatever grifty website that he was running and, uh, you know, whatever fraud and scams that he was doing on uh, this fundraising website um, for the base. His pardon would not cover his actions on January 6th. Unless the... January 6th information was also on that shoddy podcast or whatever else that it was that he Uh. was doing. And we could somehow draw the connection to them. Mm. I don't know. But my point, but my point is, uh, you know, one of the things that I would be looking for is I would, I would be looking to find a way to put him up onto, um, you know, before Congress, I'd be looking to put him there. And if he wants to take the fifth, we would challenge it. We would do whatever it is that we need to do. But there is no good faith uh, behavior by somebody like Steve Bannon. He doesn't care about good faith. It's it's not about that. It's all about um, his allegiance to Donald. Mm-hmm. It's all about um, being able to continue to grift the same way that Donald is, right? To be able to grift off of, you know, the conversation about him refusing to accept the congressional subpoena power. Well, if that's the case, why do we have Congress at all? Right. Under Trump's theory, you don't need Congress. It's all it's all executive privilege and nothing more than that. So somewhere along the line, Merrick Garland, who is not a dumb man, he's actually a super bright yeah. guy, he needs to figure out. And if you're wrong, fuck it. Okay, right? But figure out how to make it right. Yeah. There's no doubt in my mind that there are... Th- that if it's not going to be Dan Scavino, make it, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Steve Bannon, make it Dan Scavino. If it's not Dan Scavino, make it Cash Patel. If it's not Cash Patel, make it, you know, make it somebody else. But like you, I want to know, how the hell did Steve Bannon, a half-in-the-bag jerk-off, how did he know exactly how bad this insurrection was going to be the day before? I would want to see Rudy Giuliani, Bernie Kerrick on the stand. Mm-hmm. This somewhere along the line, somebody has to be in a position to provide the information. There's 35 people there. Yeah. Um, And also, you know, I'm interested in what was Trump doing? I mean, a lot of these people were firsthand eyewitnesses to Trump's actual reaction. You know, was he jubilant? Was he excited watching all of this happen on television, this violence and, you know, the invasion of the Capitol? Um, That would be good to know. And, you know, in many ways, this kind of goes to the document dump that, you know, if unless there's a stay that's ordered, um, the National Archives is going to release a lot of communications, visitor logs. I mean, there's going to be a picture painted 
of what was happening. We may not know from those, you know, you know, Trump or uh, Trump's actual, you know, emotional state or reactions that day. But we're going to get a lot of information. And what it will do, Michael, is it raises the stakes for a lot of these witnesses also, because, you know, as you mentioned, they're they're going to be under pressure implicitly or explicitly to obfuscate or even outright lie to protect the president. And when the more information that the committee has from documentary sources outside of, you know, witness testimony, the more that they have to hold these people accountable, because it may not be a crime to sit back and, and do nothing while the Capitol gets attacked or even pop, you know, pull out your popcorn and enjoy it. I mean, that's not a crime. It is a crime to lie to Congress. And so to the extent that these people testify and then they have these documents to back up, you know, to know that they know certain things, um, it's going to make it much harder for for some of these people to to lie and to protect Trump. Yeah. And could you imagine if some of these documents show that Trump actually stopped, for example, the National Guard from coming in and assisting the Capitol Police? Then I would turn around and say that the death of the police officers, the death of anybody that occurred on that site is his responsibility and he should be charged for it. You know, just moving on for a second. Arizona's representative, and he's just a disgusting fucking human being, Paul Gosar's oh vile video depicting him killing Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez rightfully has lawmakers calling for Gosar to be investigated for, viola- uh, for violating the House's code of conduct. Now, what should happen here? But moreover, Do you see a larger issue with the right's continued use and normalization of violent political imagery and rhetoric as something that will lead to violence in the real world? I mean, let's not forget, this was a video. What's to stop this video from becoming a reality? Nothing. This is how terrorists recruit people. They make videos. ISIS makes, you know, beheading videos. Then it gets people excited and then, you know, riles them up. Like, this is... Part of the intersection of, um, you know, extremist ideology with the technology that allows for proliferation and kind of group uh, group norm behavior. What happens on social media, and this is really important, I I teach about this stuff, there is... you know, it's it's different than like Paul goes. I mean, Paul goes are going to anybody in like a, a room and advocating for, you know, uh, the assassination of a member of Congress is bad. But when he posts a video about it, what it does is um, it encourages kind of like a mob mentality. Like, you know, people start liking it. They start sharing it. There is what you just said, a normalization, a sanctioning of this kind of attitude and behavior. And we're seeing this in other areas, Michael. Um, Matt Gates, you know, gave some speech a couple of weeks ago where he talked about blowing up the metal detectors in Congress. This is a member of Congress. Um, there was a, you know, a person at some Turning Point USA rally that asked Charlie Kirk, when do we get to start using our guns? And at one point, can we just start killing all the Democrats? I mean, this is not one off violent, you know, just a, a, a poor taste. And I mean, it took a lot of work to make that video. So this was very deliberate. But I mean, it's not a one off. We're seeing, you know, Ted Cruz is talking about seceding. It's talking about Texas seceding from the union. And like that is, you know, pre-Civil War (laughs) rhetoric. Um, 
So we're seeing this. And the most alarming thing is we are seeing it from elected leaders, uh, which is not just normalizing violence. It is giving permission to it. It's sanctioning it and saying to the people who are listening and looking up to these people for, you know, where, what direction to go in that violence is the answer there, you know, none of these other democratic mechanisms, um, work or you can't count on them. And we're seeing this at the micro level with the, with the threats against school board officials and stuff. It's just bottom to top local to federal, uh, that this is the message that I think is being put out and we will see violence. I think we're not far from something really tragic happening. Well, you know that you're a piece of shit and I'm referring to Paul Gosar, <laughs> when your own family, when your own family turn around and say that you're a vile piece of shit. I mean, that's really something special, right? You would think that if your relative, your brother, your cousin, right, um, were your son was a member of Congress, that's something that you would be proud of. These people are trashing him worse than you and I here today on May Cole. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's look, he is clearly unhinged. I mean, he's got serious problems. I don't know if he needs like some kind of evaluation or what. But, you know, if you imagine the kind of disturbed mind it takes to um, to have a team of people who th- who want, who put together that video and to tweet it out, like saying, oh, my team is so creative. This is awesome. Like, I mean, I don't even know. I, I don't I can't put myself in the shoes of somebody who does that. And I think it's not only should there be an ethics investigation, I think there should be, you know, I mean, I think that's a threat against a public official, against a member of Congress. If you or I did it, Michael, we would have, you know, the FBI and the Secret Service like at our doors um, talking to us. Asha, they managed to get Al Franken to leave, to leave Congress because he took a picture while somebody was sleeping with his head, you know, by some by um, this woman's backside. Right. I mean, they managed to get him to step away. This guy is, in essence, he's forecasting the hopeful assassination of another member of Congress. I mean, I don't even know what to say here. I am baffled. This is a- I'm baffled that, this- nothing, that nothing is happening here. By the way, it's... The reason he does it is because people like Matt Gates are getting away with things and they're just stalling the process. Again, hoping that the midterm elections turn it so that it stops them from losing their position. The guy was with underage females. He was, you know, paying for sex to underage to underage girls. They were taking them over state lines. It's a violation of, look, I paid $130,000 for Stormy Daniels to pull Trump's mushroom pecker. And I end up in prison. Picture what this guy is doing, right? Could you, could you imagine Matt Gates should be in prison for 20 years if I got three years? Yeah. I mean, all these people and they celebrate the uh, attack on the Capitol. Uh, Paul Gosar uh, is one of the leading people who claims that Ashley Babbitt is a martyr and was, you know, unjustly. I mean, this woman was like climbing through a window uh, where members of Congress were sitting against, you know, um, law enforcement orders to stop. I don't know. We can go down this road. Like, I mean, it just starts getting me really angry and depressed and I'm not really sure what to say to you. I wish I had a window. I could, like I said, I, I have to continue believing that, for example, the investigation again on Matt Gates continues apace that they have maybe found other avenues that they are exploring because, 
you know, it's been a while since the Asha. Asha, they got the guy that actually Venmoed the yeah. money back and forth with him testifying. I don't get it. But let's talk about something that may not make you as mad <laughs> and something that you do want to talk about. Because last week you tweeted, and I quote, the key to an information war is that you aren't constrained to a physical space. You can create your own battlefield. The battlefield is an idea. Why Democrats choose to fight on the battlefield Republicans have chosen is just weird. Like letting your enemy choose your weapons. Can you do me a favor and unpack this for my listeners? What you meant here as it was in relation to a conversation about critical race theory and how the Democrats are losing this vital battle. I mean, yeah. Asha, do you see this as an issue that will become national for the midterms with the GOP exploiting what they see as a winning fight? Yeah, listen, I mean, the Republicans are what they are doing is waging information warfare. Um, what this means is saturating the information space with, um, you know, emotionally reactive buzzwords, images, you know, associations, kind of almost creating like a Pavlovian response among their base um, and, and, and voters uh, to associate, you know, like critical race theory. Nobody can tell you what it is, um, but they've been very successful in like, you know, putting that out there and uh, and very deliberately so to kind of encompass you know, anything that somebody emotionally kind of just feels uncomfortable or unhappy with, you know, in this whole area of, you know, race relations and diversity and stuff like that. They're very successful with this. And the the thing is, is that you cannot just sit and do nothing in an information war. Like you have to counter with something like during the Cold War, we put out, you know, our ideas of American values and, you know, freedom, democracy, Ronald Reagan, Shining City on the Hill. I mean, we were constantly in in that ideological battle, which was also a battle of ideas. We didn't have the technology then. We were fighting it. No, the Democrats don't fight this. They think that they're going to pass like a policy or a law, which is great, but that's not that's not a you know, that's not what you're going to battle, uh, you know, this this type of warfare with. And I don't think they understand that this is what you know, that this is a front that they need to pay attention to um, and be proactive in putting their own ideas, associations, images, all this stuff out there. I know it feels like it's like it's almost like advertising, you know, if you let Coke take over all the advertising space, guess what? Pepsi is not going to do very well. Pepsi needs to also advertise. Like, it's just kind of basic marketing 101, and I don't know why they don't get it. And and what do they need to actually do in order to get – you know, the problem, again, is I was, I was having this conversation with – I'd like to call the guy a friend of mine, but – He's more like a social acquaintance. And, you know, they like to bitch and moan to me because um, obviously, you know, I'm out as a result of my relationship with Donald. But this guy is a true blue uh, Republican. I mean, through and through, actually, really a true red hearted Republican. And when he started talking about critical race theory, he started getting really angry. He happens to be Jewish. And I turned and said, what the fuck are you getting so angry about? First of all, it's not a law. It's not a statute. It's a theory. It's a theory that's taught in universities, basically doing nothing other than saying that everyone has a right to have their history taught, not bits and pieces, not what the 
you know, this standard, uh, we'll call it, um, you know, white Southern Christian coalition group want to have out there. It's everybody has the right. And then we started talking then about like statues being taken down of Robert E. Lee and the, the changing of the name on so many schools. Cause I can't believe the number of Robert E. Lee schools that there are. Robert E. Lee Junior High School, Robert E. Lee Elementary School, Robert E. Lee High School. I mean, right? I couldn't believe the number that existed. And I said to him, all right, listen, fuck nut. Let me be very straightforward with you. How would you like to attend the Adolf Hitler School of the Arts and Sciences? How would you like to attend the Himmler School of Mathematics or the Goebbels School of Medicine? I mean, you know, you understand that there's sensitivity that other people have. And it's not, it's not all about white privilege and, you know, and status quo. And he turned around and he said to me, you know, that's America's history. And, you know, we've advanced past that. I said, yeah, but picture, picture the, the young black child that's going into a school that's named after somebody who was a slave owner. And yet you still don't even teach that properly in school. Yeah. So everything, you know, you said is completely accurate. But here's here's the mistake in this type of approach is that you can't battle emotions with facts. You'll never convince them because they're it's like a subjective, emotional thing. And often research shows that you actually confront people with facts. They double down on their their belief. Um so you ask, like, how do you so what, I will say this, if you're debating what critical race theory is or like then you're all you, you've already lost because that's where you've adopted the weapon that your opposition has given you. The, the fatal flaw here is that once you're arguing about what critical race theory is or, you know, defending it, you, you've, you've already played into the hands of the the goals of the information warfare operation, which is to get you onto their battlefield. And that's their battlefield. Um, this is kind of like what happened with the whole collusion thing. You know, they, they kept throwing out this word collusion, which has no legal significance. Collusion, you know, there's that's not itself a crime. Um, and so, you know, it was collusion is not a crime. You know, collusion is not a crime. And people say, well, conspiracy is a crime. So what happened is the threshold became a criminal threshold. If you didn't meet the threshold of conspiracy, which Mueller couldn't you know, demonstrate, then Trump was off the hook. So we have to keep an eye out for these buzzwords that become these like, you know, little tricky lures to get you into, uh, you know, their field. The battlefield needs to be what like are what are our universal values here? You know, what are we fighting for? We're fighting for democracy. We're fighting for you know, all these things that I mentioned about during the Cold War. Research shows that if you can get people to identify with a common like super group, like we're all Americans, we're, you know, the, something that is kind of more universal, they start to let go of some of these tribal affiliations. Once you, if you're, if you get into the weeds, like you said, if you get into the dirt, just like Trump does this, this is kind of just happening on a bigger scale. If you get into the dirt and you're, you're trying to, you know, then you're, and you're forced to choose sides. Are you for critical race theory or against critical race theory? You're already in um, a battle that, it's kind of like a losing right. battle. It's a tribal battle. Yep. You are right. Well, let me, you know, Asha, one of the things that I had said to you early on is that uh, the hour goes by very quickly. Yes. And so uh, it goes by really quickly. So I have one last question for you. 
You retweeted an article last week by Greg Sargent from the Washington Post mm-hmm. about the lopsided communications advantage that Greg Yunkin was able to tap into and use to defeat Terry McAuliffe. Now, Sargent writes, and I quote, for months, Yunkin and his allies have pumped that raw right-wing sewage directly into the minds of the GOP base, behind the backs of moderate swing voters via a right-wing media network that has no rival on the Democratic side. Mm -hmm. If you would, explain to my listeners what Sargent is talking about here, because I think it's it's an important point and one that Democrats will need to solve as they fight for moderate swing voters in the upcoming midterm election. Absolutely. It was a very insightful article and it gets to the heart of some of this kind of these information warfare tactics that I I have been talking about, which is there is a very well coordinated right wing media ecosystem. There's there's research on this. Uh, Once it enters into, you know, one outlet, whether it's Breitbart or, you know, Red State or Fox or whatever, there is a unified theme and talking point that then get repeated over and over and over and over again from anyone who's in this like this information silo. There's something called the illusory truth effect, which means that if you hear something over and over again from different sources, you assume you give it a lot of credibility because you're like, well, a lot of people are saying this. It must be true. By contrast, you know, the the media system, the the I, I don't want to say the left-wing media ecosystem, but kind of the mainstream media ecosystem is much more diverse. You're gonna hear different stuff, you know, different depending on what outlet that you're using. So you don't get that same um, effect, which is why there has to be a much more concerted um effort on the part of Democrats to have saturated, unified, repetitive messaging on what they want people to know and associate and have it in in clear sound bites with positive associations. Um, you know, I referenced uh, in one of my tweets, um, there's a great do- uh, movie called No, which was about how uh, the Chileans ousted Augusto Pinochet and they came up with they, they create a coalition across all these different groups that all disagreed on policy. But their goal was to get rid of uh, the, the dictator. And they had a unified, clear, hopeful message that they just like plug again and again and again. And it's a good model, to be quite honest, because right now the Democrats have nothing. Yep. And uh, that's the old Stalin theory, right? Say it over Mm -hmm. and over and over again. People will believe it's true. But Asha, let me thank you for joining me again on Mea Culpa. I'm going to have you on again because there's a lot of shit that's still going to be coming down, whether it's the DA in New York, along with the attorney general, whether it's going to be Georgia, whether it's me, D.C., whether it's me, the pick, who knows? But it requires your knowledge, your expertise and your voice. And so I want to thank you for joining me again on Mea Culpa and always good to see you. Thank you. Love being on with you and I'll come back anytime. Thanks, Ash. And now for today's Mea Culpa. Today's indictment of Steve Bannon is being held up as a victory for the rule of law and a stern rebuke to Donald Trump and those who believe they can ignore the will of Congress. It's also a reminder that after four years of the lawless and destructive Donald Trump, there is in fact a new sheriff in town. Only this sheriff is not a toady or protector of the president, but an exactly and deeply ethical jurist with an eye towards returning the Justice Department to a place of trust within American society. 
that we were so quick to distrust Garland and even call for his removal for his slowness is a sign that we have become used to the knee-jerk, reactive cage-fighting that passed for justice during the Trump administration. I must confess that I, too, had grown fucking exasperated with Merrick Garland and that I could not believe he was not upholding the will of Congress immediately. But this is real life, not an episode of Law & Order. The wheels of justice move at their own pace because justice requires that it be both fair and deliberate. We must constantly remind ourselves that there are good reasons for prosecutors to take the time to do a thorough and thoughtful job. That we want a system of government in which the rule of law works, not one that responds to crowds that loudly chant, lock him up. And that while it's not easy to live through the struggle to restore a functioning democracy, the hard work and even the waiting are worth doing. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa. Nothing but the truth. <laughs>